good morning, everyone. I hope you guys are doing great this morning. My name is Kane, and I'm on the leadership team here. Um, thanks for making your Crossbridge a part of your morning. Um, I'm glad you guys are all here. I'm going to pray, and then we'll hop into the message today. So, God, I thank you for um, just this time for us to be able to gather and worship together. Um, I'm thankful for these people in this space that we have. Um, I pray as we read your words today and talk about what they mean for not only the, the writers and the um, people who are in this story, but also us, um, that we would um, carry that out from here um, to make your kingdom known in greater measure uh, now in the same powerful way it was known in the time of Jesus. And so your son's going to pray. Amen. So who is Jesus? That's the name of our series, but it's also one of the most important questions that anyone can ask and seek to answer. Uh, son of God, Messiah, Savior, sinless man, healer, king, friend, mediator, high priest, and so on. Uh, Jesus was and is the central figure of our faith. And as such, it's absolutely necessary to wrestle through Scripture to get answers to questions about Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, the resurrection, and all of the things surrounding it. We need to strive to understand Jesus and his teachings better as well as the rest of Scripture. And there are a few times in my life that I can remember where I was reading a passage or studying a passage about Jesus and something was revealed to me whether through like my own intuition or through studying it with commentators or some helps. And it kind of upended some preconceived notions I had about Jesus or a teaching or a passage. And this is actually one of those passages today. Um, I mean, I'm very frequently surprised by Jesus when I study more and more, uh, specifically about like historical context or a lot of what he's doing in the turn in the context of like the religious life of the day. Um, but this passage in particular is one of those passages where like something clicked in my mind and I was like, oh, that's what it's about. And it made this passage that much more special for me or that much more powerful for me. And today we're going to be looking at the um, accounts we have in the Gospels of Jesus clearing the temple courts. Uh, and we're going to read through all four Gospel accounts this morning. Um, and so we'll read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together. So, and this is what Matthew uh, says about that in Matthew 21, starting in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah 56 there. Um, Mark 11 says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them. He said, it is, it is, is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Luke 19, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Uh, and real quick, just because it doesn't appear in John's account, which we're about to read, when Jesus says den of robbers, we'll talk about where that comes from. 
but it's better translated as cave of bandits. Um, and historically, that idea would have been understood as like a place where like criminals hide uh, to be away, like to basically hide as fugitives from justice while they like plot out their next crime. Um, so you, you have Jesus coming in and contrasting the temple with a place where marauders plot and live and do their bidding. So it's a pretty strong statement Jesus is making here, undoubtedly. John chapter 2 says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove out, drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, John doesn't quote from Isaiah. He actually quotes from Psalm 69, 9, in which David, uh, that, that psalm is David crying out to God because of the opposition that David is facing uh, politically because David had this great passion to build the temple of God and he was facing all kinds of like political opposition. So like David's crying out saying basically like, my zeal to build this temple is going to consume me because I want to do this and all these other people don't. And so that's kind of what Jesus is quoting from there. And so this is the picture we have. The Son of God walks into the Father's house and hears the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep instead of brokenness and thanksgiving and worship and contrition and adoration. Instead of prayers, instead of like prayers and petition, he, he hears like noisy commerce. And it drives him to act in this zeal-filled, forceful manner. It's not cruel, but, I mean, you don't move hundreds of pounds of livestock with like a whisper and a tickle. Um, it requires some urgency, some force to what's happening. And, and this is far more aggressive than you'll see Jesus behave anywhere else in Scripture. And there are several things in this passage that I want to draw our attention to before I kind of bring it home for us. First, we know that Jesus clears the temple at least once, but he might do it two times. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record almost identical passages near the end of Jesus's ministry, but John, in his usual fashion, you guys know, like I kind of envision John as the artist, the carefree spirit of the group. John does not follow suit. Um, he records a temple clearing that, as you read it, is at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and there are some details that don't appear in the other Gospels, but it's pretty much the same series of events. The tricky thing is that Gospel writers at times, but especially John, cared very little for chronology, like being precise. John follows a lot of thematic ideas. Like his book is often uh, like divided up by themes instead of like following a perfect timeline. Um, it doesn't change anything, but it, but it is interesting to point out. What is important to note is that all four gospel writers record it, which is typically an indication that it's really important. Like either they felt it was really important or the Holy Spirit in its inspiration directed these four men to all write down this story to highlight it. It's one of the few things that we have where it's like all four of them record the same sort of thing. Second, time matters a ton here, specifically time of year. This event happens in Jerusalem, specifically around 
the feast of the Passover. Passover commemorated the night when the angel of death passed over the homes daubed with blood in the manner that was prescribed by the Lord. And it killed the firstborn sons that did not have blood on their home. And ultimately, this was the Passover, the, the angel passing over, the angel of death coming into Egypt was the watershed event that brought about the deliverance and the escape and the rescue of Jews from slavery. Passover at its heart was about remembering God's rescue and remembering God's redemption. So this was a highly significant moment in the lives of all of Judaism, all of Israel. It was a big deal. So the city is slam-packed full of people. Anyone that was within traveling distance who practiced Judaism was expected to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. All eyes were on Jerusalem, but more specifically, all eyes were on the temple. And here's why. Place matters a ton here as well. The importance of the temple as a place for the Jews cannot be exaggerated. The temple was not only the focus of of the nation of Israel's spiritual life, but it also served as a symbol of national identity and pride. The Jews had shed blood, both their own blood and other people's blood, to possess and build this place, and they were willing to shed blood to protect it. The Talmud, which is the, the source of like rabbinical uh, Jewish interpretation of the law, um, says in it, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building. So for the Jews, this was like the platonic ideal of like beauty in terms of a building. For the Jews, it wasn't quite everything, but it was pretty dang close to it. So when Jesus confronts what's happening here, it's important to keep in mind, he's not only confronting spiritual elements, he is confronting political elements, socioeconomic elements, cultural elements. Jesus is in essence, by clearing the temple, confronting not only the place but what the place stands for. Similar to how an attack on the U.S. Capitol would not only be an attack on the physical place, but what the attack on that place represents. Jesus, continuing his years-long ministry of reforming first-century Jewish culture and conceptions of religious uh, ideas and God's salvation, undoubtedly recognized. He undoubtedly knew that confronting what was happening in the temple was a necessary, necessary step in order to confront what's happening in the greater culture around Judaism and the teachings of the rabbis and all of those other things that are happening. And more precisely, where Jesus does this clearing in the temple matters as well. If you uh, look at this diagram of the court, the temple courts, you'll see... Um, so this is very divided. The temple was intentionally very divided because the basic gist of it was you had to be of certain levels of access, right? Like only top secret clearance got into the most inner parts. The red part around the outside that you see is actually larger and there's a wall around that as well. Um, But the red part where it says court of the Gentiles, that's where this is happening. That's where the temple clearing is taking place. And this is important. This is probably one of the most important parts of the story if you don't know this. This temple clearing is happening in the court of the Gentiles. And this was literally the only place, the only place in the entire 
temple courts area where Gentiles or foreigners could worship God. The only place. They were not allowed to go any further. This is the only place that Gentiles could have access to worshiping God. And this is why, fourth, Jesus' reform is not that the merchants in here were corrupt or he's outlawing sacrifice or money changing. And that's what I always thought this story was about. I always read, you read robbers, marketplace, thieves, money changers, market, etc., gold changing, all of these things. And I assumed for the longest time that this story was about finance and corruption. That this story was about somebody stealing money from somebody else or somebody getting the better, taking advantage of other people. But Jesus is not concerned with that, at least not in the context. Like I think obviously he doesn't want people taken advantage of financially, but that's not the context of what he says. And we'll talk about that in a second. Sacrifices were required, point blank period. Like that was part of Jewish law that God had given all of Israel. And it was allowed within Jewish law to bring uh, your sacrifice to Jerusalem, but it was also allowed that you buy your sacrifice in Jerusalem as well. These ideas, these processes and procedures had existed for a really long time. Um, Doves were the minimum sacrifice. It was a poor person's sacrifice, but at the very least you had to sacrifice doves, but the wealthier people could offer up greater gifts, which is why you see these larger livestock animals there. The big spenders, instead of dragging a cow from 70 miles away, would instead just wait till they got there and then purchase a cow for the sacrifice. Up until very recently, contextually, I mean, um, like only slightly before Jesus is here in the temple, the, the sacrifice market would have actually been happening in the Kidron Valley, which is like adjacent to the Temple Mount. Um, but it's down in a valley, in Kidron Valley, um, and it's like hundreds of feet of elevation change from the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount. Um, and so for either sake of convenience or maybe to make a little bit more money, it seems that the people who are in charge of kind of like the temple as a physical space, the Sadducees, had kind of allowed this thing that was permitted to happen in the Kidron Valley to kind of move into these outer courts of the temple in order to make it a little more convenient, a little more easy, maybe, maybe make a little bit more money because it was more convenient for it to happen there. Similarly, money changing was a commonly practice and legally in both the Jewish law, but also like culturally speaking. Um, and it was pretty much a necessity at the time. In the first century, all temple taxes were to be paid in Tyrian coinage because the Tyrian shekel was the closest to the Hebrew shekel. And you don't want to pay too little to the temple, right? Like that would be a big no-no. But you also don't want to overpay to the temple because that's like legitimately your money and you're trying to budget everything. And so what you do, you travel from far away, you kind of just bring the coins that you had, whether they were stamped with X or whether they were stamped with Y, whether it was in gold or whether it was in silver or whatever. And you would bring that, and then for a small fee, which was allowed in the Mishnah, which was 1 24th of a shekel, that was the surcharge, not like those Ticketmaster surcharges, you know. Um, it was 1 24th of a shekel, and they would exchange your money to make sure, to ensure that you paid the proper amount to the temple, not too much, not too little, right? 
So this is all legal. It was all above board. This was all allowed within Jewish law. And so it's important to note the sacrificial system doesn't come under attack here. Neither does the money changing. Okay, Temple tax had to be paid. Sacrifices had to be brought to the temple. These people were making it slightly more convenient by having it in the temple. Now, I'm not foolish enough to believe that this was being done without some sort of immediate benefit to the people who were in that marketplace. But Jewish law allowed for there to be benefit to the sellers, right? They were the ones who had to get the cattle there. They were the ones who had to do all of the services to provide the money changing, right? Jewish law allowed those things to happen. And we're going to unpack this in a second. But Jesus' main contention is that commercial activity, however justified in and of itself, should not be carried out where people come to pray. And the temple regime, which encouraged this, had failed in its responsibility to care for the temple as it should have. Jesus is not concerned with the what. He's concerned with the where. Um, You can almost sum up him saying, like, if you want to do this, that's fine, but don't do it here. Of all places, don't do it here. And that leads to the next thing we should know about this passage. Probably most importantly, Jesus' primary concern here is twofold. It's reverence and it's injustice. And there's certainly overlap here. Jesus' cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God, and a manner in which people who are attempting to worship God can worship God freely apart from oppression distraction, or an environment that screams, you are less than, which is exactly what's happening here. The the Gentiles walking into this space would have seen nothing but an environment that said, you are less than. You are not worthy of the same privileges and rights of worship as the Jews are. The Gentiles would have walked into this place Literally, the only place they could worship God. And they would have found what felt pretty equivalent to a first century state fair. It's also important to remember, keep this in mind, this is a really important thing contextually. The Gentiles who would have come here to the temple, to the court of Gentiles, would have been people who were genuinely seeking God. There was no social pressure for the Gentiles to want to come to the temple and worship God. Their mom wasn't calling them and being like, where'd you go to synagogue this Sunday? Like it wasn't a cultural part of who they were. And so for a Gentile to take the time out of their day, week, month, year to come to Jerusalem, these were true converts. These were people who it really mattered to. These are not people who showed up because of some cultural expectation or some heritage norm. These are people who truly, really wanted to worship God. And so when Jesus justifies his protest by quoting from Isaiah 56, it's significant. Because the context of that passage is concerned greatly with the welcome that is to be given to foreigners when God's salvation comes. Verse uh, verse 3 of Isaiah 56, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. 
Isaiah 56 also has great emphasis on the entirety of the temple being a holy place of prayer and of sacrifice. Jesus is not stupid. He knows exactly why he's quoting what he's quoting. He knows the greater context of Isaiah. He probably memorized the whole thing. He knows exactly what he's doing, which is why it's also important and interesting to note that when he uses the phrase den of robbers or bandits cave, it is an illusion. He pulls this from Jeremiah 7, um, verse 11, that says, Has this house, the temple which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. The context of this passage in Jeremiah is that through the prophet Jeremiah, God contrasts the people's pious words, right? Their words of like, God, we love you. God, we serve you. God, we honor you. And yet, their actual behavior is something completely different. And in Jeremiah, that behavior is basically compared to that of criminals who are like grifters, who are robbers, who are thieves, who are stealing from God in the house of the Lord. And so when we look at the entire picture of what's happening here, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7 and Psalm, in the, in, the, in the Psalm 69 that David is quoted from in John, when you look at the entirety of the picture and what's happening, Jesus' primary complaint here is that holiness and justice towards the outsider are being destroyed. It's two worlds colliding. It's reverence and it's justice. Show reverence to God and care about people being able to worship God. And I think this is a really cool but indirect way of Jesus living out the greatest commandment, to love God and to love people. Jesus drove the marketers out of the temple in order to restore and safeguard the rights and the privileges of Gentile worship that were established by God. These the ability for the Gentiles to be in the court of the Gentiles was not something that was man-made. This was something that God had done to allow foreigners to worship him. It was always a big part of God's law. If you go back and read Leviticus and read Deuteronomy, God cares so much for the foreigner and the outsider. This was a part of God's identity, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders at the time had destroyed that. They had created a system, a way, of means of injustice that did not allow all people to worship God. This market was preventing that, and Jesus comes into the temple to set things back in their proper place. And so when we ask, who is Jesus? Our answers to those questions need to have some understanding of this passage in particular. And this is the big idea I want you guys to walk away with today. Jesus does not like injustice. He won't stand for it. But especially and specifically when it keeps people from coming to the Father. Especially and specifically when it means people are prevented from worshiping God. Here are the first two words that come uh, to us in Isaiah 56. Again, the same passage that talks about foreigners, the same passage that talks about equal access for everyone, the same passage that talks about holiness in the temple. Ready? Here's the first two words of Isaiah 56. Maintain 
justice. Those are the first two words that come from the Lord. Maintain justice. You keep it, you preserve it, you protect it. If you ever read the Gospels, you walk away knowing a lot of things, but one of the things you know is that Jesus was an emotional man. I think there are times where he is appropriately stoic, but I also think he felt things to the fullness that they can be felt. He got sad. He got angry. He was joyful. He was scared. And when you see Jesus get angry, most of the time his anger is directed at like the hypocrisy or the injustice of a religious person that is preventing somebody from trying to worship or access God. That's what you see him get the most vitriolic language, the most passionate behavior, all come from Jesus trying to correct injustice that says, you, person X, Y, or Z, cannot worship God. And he says, no, that is not how that works. There are a ton of examples of Jesus correcting injustice and addressing hypocrisy when he sees it. He feeds thousands of hungry people. That's justice. He brings healing, <clears throat> both spiritual and physical healing, into the lives of people in the midst of opposition from religious people. That's justice. He gives value to the imago dei, the image of God in all people. He does it to sex workers, to traitors, to adulterers. He does it to all people. That is justice. He rebukes hypocrisy and carelessness that makes it harder for people to come to God. And that's the type of injustice we see him confronting here head on. This is the only time we have recorded where Jesus acts with such force and intensity. And I think it's the combination of the lack of reverence for his father and the injustice and the care, the lack of care for the outsider that sets Jesus off. These people are doing what is probably some of the most egregious versions of religious missing the forest for the trees sort of like practices that you see here. You can almost, in my mind, I can almost picture the religious leaders saying, but Jesus, we're encouraging sacrifices and temple taxes to ensure that God receives what is his, like what he is due. And I think Jesus' rebuke would be, but at what cost? At the cost of lack of reverence for the Gentiles to be able to worship God at the cost of marginalizing an entire people group because of something they can't help or prevent or whatever. You're like, you're, you're trying to like give God what is his, but also marginalize other people by doing it. That doesn't line up. It's unacceptable. And this isn't a demonstration by Jesus to protect or make space in his faith communities for cynics or doubters or vile hateful people who were rejecting God this was Jesus protecting those who like genuinely genuinely wanted to know God and to see him glorified Jesus is a person who will not stand for lack of reverence but also will not stand for injustice that keeps people from genuinely seeking and worshiping at the feet of God and and I'm sure almost certainly cuz as a Gentile, I, I feel the same way. Like Jesus making it possible for the Gentiles to worship. I mean, for a group that was religiously marginalized, 
to have someone of authority finally stand up for you in the way that Jesus does could not, there, I mean, there was probably likely not a more meaningful thing that could have happened at that Passover than for Jesus to clear those courts and in essence say to the Gentiles, you are welcomed here. You are loved. You have access to the Father. And the thing that I have done is not only for my Father, but it's also for you. And the millions of Gentiles who would then read this story for the thousands of years after Jesus' death, and this is recorded, are going to feel the same way. Like, Jesus made a way for me? Yeah. You're not a part of Israel. You're an outsider. And he's made a way for you. Jesus was reclaiming the temple for its legitimate use. And he was setting the stage ultimately for the crucifixion. And this is why in large part what Jesus is doing here is so important. The money changers, the livestock salesmen, by the nature of their presence, the Sadducees allowing them to be there, they were excluding people from having access to worship God. Which is almost quite literally the antithesis of the cross. The purpose of the cross. In many ways, Jesus' actions here are prophetic because he was clearing the way, clearing the path, clearing the floor of anyone or anything that had previously stood in the way of somebody coming to God. And in the cross, he has proverbially cleansed all of the temples of the world as if to say the path has now been made clear for you. The path has now been made open for you. There are no barriers. There are no obstacles for you to come to me except for the ones that you might put in the way. And one of the primary points of the gospel is that it creates a means of access to God for all people, regardless of insert anything. That's one of the primary points of the gospel. It creates a means of access to God for all people, regardless of insert anything. Through Christ, through a faith in Christ, through a relationship with Christ, through submission to Christ, we all have a pathway to be in relationship with God. Now, will everyone choose that path? Will all people be saved by God's grace? Will all people be willingly, sur willingly surrender their lives as a part of following Jesus and be able to walk with him in the entirety of their lives to be in relationship with their creator and father in heaven? No, not everyone will choose that path but it will be accessible to them all. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus is a protector of justice and a pursuer of holiness and reverence. Now, obviously, we're not the central figure of the story, but knowing that justice is important to Jesus and he does not like hypocrisy or irreverence, what do we walk away then from this passage knowing or believing or hopefully practicing? I have two things that I think are important for us. As Christians, we as ambassadors of our King Jesus have an obligation to God to ensure that we are not putting unnecessary barriers in between others who are genuinely pursuing faith in God. One of the things that I often wonder is that if the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem, had been concerned with prayer, 
and been a house of worship and prayer and been full of men who led with prayer and worship and reverence and holiness at the forefront of their mind. Part of me wonders if they would have been able to see the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in Jesus. Like, I like to think, or I hope, that if the temple was operating as it should have been, that they would have been able to see Jesus for who he really is. Instead of the usurper wannabe, you know, fake that they thought Jesus was. I don't think that those leaders of the church could see God, could see Jesus for who he truly was. Because not only their hearts were defiled, but the temple itself had become defiled. The house of God had become distracted. It had become a place of opportunity as opposed to a pursuit of godliness and reverence and holiness as it should have been. And what this means for us is that we all have a responsibility to do some serious self-reflection and self-evaluation to determine if we ourselves are creating barriers that make it harder for other people to come to God, or if we are building bridges to help people connect to God. And if we discover that we are barrier creators in one realm or another, it's going to be different for all of us, whatever barriers we may create, then we need to do everything within our power, probably starting with submission to the Lord, to tear down those barriers. And this is an important thing to note. And I, and I say that because it comes up in Scripture, uh, especially in the, in the letters that Paul writes. Theological libertinism can have just as much a barrier-building effect as theological legalism. And what I, what I mean by that is it's possible to create such a tight, narrow window by which you can come to God. You could set the bar so high and narrow the path so much that you make it nearly impossible for people to follow Jesus. That's legalism. Amen. But the inverse is true as well. You can be such a libertine that the examples you set, the practices you follow, the things you say and do, the beliefs you espouse have such a wide margin that you miss Jesus for who he actually is. And you end up worshiping something. You can create a barrier by worshiping or telling others through word or deed about a false Jesus who's just okay with everything that everyone does all the time and does not call people to repentance or call people to submission or call people to come before the Father and give up sacrifice of themselves in order for the kingdom to be more glorified. This is similar to what Paul writes about in the entire book of Galatians. You can't be a legalist, but you also can't be a libertine. Both of those create barriers. They're just different types of barriers. And both are incredibly unloving approaches to a relationship in Christ. So we all need to look at ourselves and ask, am I creating barriers for others to know Jesus? And then if in good faith, when in good faith, we have determined that, you know what, I feel like I've torn down all of those barriers or when the time is right and we've removed barriers or we feel like we need to, Christians, we also have an obligation following the example of Jesus to correct others with appropriate force when necessary 
who claim Christ, yet gatekeep the kingdom of God. Now, we certainly don't have a physical building like the temple that we need to worry about protecting the integrity or sanctity of. The presence of the Lord is not in the temple as it was for hundreds of years. Since the day of Pentecost that you read about in Acts chapter 2 and the coming of the Holy Spirit, God now through his Holy Spirit dwells in each person who is a Christian. And Paul tells us now that we are the holy temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? If you have received from God, you are not of your own. Christians can worship where they are in spirit and in truth because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all Christians. Those who do not belong to Christ do not have the Holy Spirit of God residing in them. Thus, their bodies are not a temple of the Holy Spirit. What that means in part is that when people who do not have the Holy Spirit interact with people who do have the Holy Spirit, they should find temples of prayer, places of worship, lives consumed with reverence for God. The same expectations that Jesus had of the temple should be seen in the lives of Christians. Point blank period. It's not a physical place anymore. The, the, the place that the Holy Spirit dwells is not in the temple. It is in us. And the same level of care and reverence and love that Jesus wanted shown to the temple, should, we should show to our own selves, our own bodies, our own families as we lead them. And I don't want to belabor this point too much, but the church, and I don't mean this building, although church buildings are included in it, the church like the temple was for the Gentiles should be a place for all people who are genuinely seeking God. People should come to Christians and their churches to find God, and they should not find commerce they should not find greed. They should not find entertainment or excess. I think that's out of line with what Christ calls the church to be here as exampled in this passage. People who want to know God should interact with people who call themselves Christians and not find hypocrisy. They should not find lustful, angry, drunken, greedy, stubborn, vengeful, whatever people who do not believe in truth, and who do not walk in grace. They should find a holy people, people who are full of grace and mercy, and people who will fight for injustice and make a way for all people to see God. But that's often not the case. And like Jesus, I think we have to correct other people. Whether they are Christians or call themselves Christians, when they are doing something that shows irreverence to God, or if it creates barriers, between others and God. We can't do it flippantly, obviously. We need to make sure, like Jesus, that we have scriptural standing and backing when we confront people. Can't just do it based on our feelings or opinions. Once we've discerned the necessary steps, we must, in love, correct people. And that's important to keep in mind. Jesus' confrontation here is not done out of hatred toward the Pharisees. It's not done, I don't think, out of hatred toward the traditions of the Jewish law or the exceptions that were allowed here. It's done in his love for the Gentiles. It's done in his love 
for people to be able to come to his father who he knows is the remedy for all of their hurts, all of their pain, all of their struggles. And he wants them to have the same access that everyone else gets. It's done out of love. It's a compulsion that drives him. We cannot, we must not, we cannot allow the church to become a den of robbers. We must ensure it does not become one. And if we ever realize that the church or a person has become a den of robbers and they are a brother or sister in Christ that is in our fellowship, we have to correct them. There's an obligation to do so. And when I say appropriate force, there's something really important I need to clarify behind that phrase. The other day I was talking to my buddy Dave, who's one of the smartest guys I know, um, maybe one of the smartest human beings who's ever lived. I don't know. But he's also one of the best people I know at building bridges and tearing down barriers. And I was sharing with him my frustrations about this one particular group of Christians right now um, that I think are creating some of the most like dishonoring and awful barriers in the church right now. And I was like just you know, exasperated and like, Dave, what do I do? How do I do this? How do I interact with these people? How do I, do I have an obligation to correct these people? Um, and I was having this conversation before I knew I was preaching on this. So it just, you know, that's the way the Holy Spirit works. And I was like, Dave, what do I do? And he, of course, in his wisdom and grace, drew my heart and my mind back to scripture, particularly the epistle of 1 John. And 1 John talks a lot about testing the spirits, encountering false teachers, confronting people who are teaching false gospels, who are teaching lies, and spinning weaves of deception and deceit within the church. Talks about make sure you're engaging with truth. But after that repeated like section of things, there's this also woven into that passage in 1 John, constantly about love, about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. His conversation was a great reminder for me that even though we test the spirits, even though we confront false teachers or people who claim Christ but are deceiving others for one way or another, that our, that our first posture has to be leading with love. And our motivation for confronting people can't be anger or bitterness or hatred. It has to be compelled with love. Christ's love compels us. That's what has to drive that. Lead with love and leave with love. That's how Jesus confronts injustice and that's how we have to do this, the same thing. So who is Jesus? Jesus is someone who passionately cares about showing reverence to God. Jesus is somebody who deeply cares about justice, especially when it prevents people from coming to God. Jesus is the Savior of all people. And Jesus led with love, but he confronted with passion when it was necessary. And if we want to follow him, that's the walk. That's the path we need to walk as well. That's the behaviors we need to emulate to others. 
Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for um, this word that we have of yours that teaches us so much about um, who Jesus was and is and what he cares about and what mattered to him. Um, God, I pray that we can be people who clear the way, clear the paths, clear barriers for people to worship God freely. That we can be people who um, love people well, are compelled by love to act, to reset the table when necessary for justice to ring out. I pray that we would be people of both reverence and justice, of holiness and care for the outsider, and that we would do that all for your greater glory. And see your sons and we pray. Amen.